Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anish Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about why young women develop breast cancer with Dr. Maria Rosenblatt. Dr. Rosenblatt is an instructor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Maria, before we dive into what I'm sure is going to be a really interesting topic, tell us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. Sure. I see all types of breast cancer, but my personal interest is in young women who develop breast cancer. So, you know, breast cancer is one of these malignancies that is so very common. Can you kind of give us a bit of a landscape of, you know, who gets breast cancer? Do we generally speaking see this in younger women, older women? Kind of set the scene for us. Sure. So breast cancer typically occurs in women in their 50s and 60s. Um, And in that age group, breast cancer is pretty common. It happens in about one out of every eight women. Um, Breast cancer in younger women is what we consider when the woman is diagnosed before the age of 40. And that's actually pretty rare and happens in about 5% of breast cancers that we see. So, you know, the obvious question that I am certain every listener is thinking about right now is, how do young women get diagnosed with breast cancer younger than 40? Because I thought we were all supposed to start getting mammograms at the age of 40. So how does that happen? So that's a great question. So a lot of women that we see um, self-palpate something, so they feel something or they notice a change in their breast and they go to their primary care doctor and it gets diagnosed from there. Um, and then other women have a family history of cancer or perhaps breast cancer in their family um, and got tested and actually um, were found to have a genetic mutation and followed with a high-risk clinic. And perhaps it was picked up through imaging through that clinic. So I want to dive into both of those scenarios uh, independently. So the first is women who self-palpate a mass. Now, there has been a lot of controversy about um, self-breast exam, and recently the American Cancer Society kind of moved away from self-breast exam, whereas other organizations continue to advocate for this. So, What's the answer? Should women be doing a breast exam every month? Um, And if so, uh, what should they be looking for? And if not, um, how do these things get picked up? So that's a great question. Um, I think part of the reason why it's controversial is because it's difficult for people who are not medically trained to pick up something um, when they feel their own breast. And that's understandable. They haven't been trained to do so. And so I think part of the controversy is that we don't want women to become super anxious and to worry about this and to constantly be checking for it. Um, On the other hand, um, 
at least in my clinic, I've definitely seen some women who found it on their own. Um, and then that's what prompted them to go to the doctor. So I think in an ideal world, if somebody is going to see their, whether it's their primary or their OBGYN um, on a regular basis and getting a physical exam through them at least once a year, um, that's usually sufficient and they don't have to do their own exam. But if they know that they have a family history or if they know that they have a genetic mutation, um, I think it's okay for them um, to do it on their own just to keep an extra eye on things. And if they ever find anything worrisome, they can always point it out to their primary or their OBGYN. Okay. So at what age should women start either doing self-breast exams if they've got a high-risk family history or seeing their family physician or OBGYN for a clinical breast exam? Should that start at 18 or later, earlier? How does that work? So early breast cancer is still very rare. So the recommendation for the majority of women remains the same, which is probably around the age of 40, you can start to do these self-exams. And that's around the time when most women would start doing mammograms as well. Um, unless, of course, you you know have a known genetic mutation and then you would follow what the high-risk clinic is telling you. And, and based on what genetic mutation you have, you might... Um, want to start screening earlier. So let's talk a little bit about genetic mutations then. You mentioned having a family history. Now, family histories can vary, right? Um, so some people might have a mother who was diagnosed at the age of 75. Others might have aunts uh, or cousins who were diagnosed earlier. What counts as a significant family history? When should women start worrying about that and start asking about genetic testing? Sure, that's a great question. So um, we have a whole set of guidelines that actually defines what is a high-risk family history. Um, and they're a little bit complicated. But in general, what we consider high-risk is if you have um, first-degree relative with breast cancer. Um, we know that that puts somebody at twice as high of a risk as the general population of getting breast cancer. Um, and then there are other things. So even if it's not a first degree relative, but if you have multiple um, family members with cancer, um, and sometimes it depends on what type of cancer, some cancers are more uh, closely associated together than others. So I would say if there's a first degree relative or if there are multiple family members, um, or if there's a family member who was diagnosed at an early age, so like we were talking about earlier than 40, um, that's a reason to just maybe check in with a primary care doctor and seeing if you would be eligible to see a genetic counselor to talk about that a little bit more. And so what age should you be thinking about genetic testing? I know that some people... Um, you know, they they know their their family history. Maybe they've gotten tested or uh, or not, and maybe they have young children, um, pediatrics populations. Should those people be getting tested? Should they be getting their kids tested? At what age should people uh, pursue genetic testing? That's a great question. So. Um in general, most of our screenings um, start um, around the 20s for this um, 
very high penetrance genetic mutations that we worry about the most, um, nothing really starts earlier than that. So we usually, if somebody tests positive, the genetic counselors are really great about counseling them about who needs to get tested in the family and at what age. Um, But in general, when it comes to kids, they don't have to get tested until they're in their 20s. Um, And that's really beneficial on, you know, several different factors. First, they're old enough to to take um, the benefits and the risks into account on their own and make that decision on their own. Um, And then they don't have to worry about it while they can't do anything about it. So it's better to get tested a little bit closer to when um, actual, um, you can actually put a treatment plan into effect if it comes back positive. Um, So I would say in your mid-20s or late-20s, you can kind of start thinking about it. um, And if you're eligible, talk to a genetic counselor. and, And they really do a good job of going through extensive family history of many generations and um kind of giving you a good risk assessment of um, what genetic tests um, you might be eligible for. So the obvious question then is, can people under the age of mid-20s get breast cancer? So we really have not seen that. Um, There are other types of mutations that um, Um, have other types of cancers associated with them. And some of them are more of childhood cancers. So some things like P53, um, you know, that's a gene that can cause many types of different cancers. And that's something that can affect um, children. But um, in general, unless you have that kind of, you know, what we refer to as a syndrome, um, usually we don't see breast cancer in such a young population. Okay. But I I think that the caveat that you had alluded to earlier uh, still applies, right? So if you are 21 and you see something that is unusual for you, different, uh, causing concern, you should still say something. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it never hurts to to just get it checked out by a medical professional. And, and sometimes it can be reassuring and sometimes um, you might just need some extra imaging to take a closer look. Okay, great. So, you know, when we talk about, um, you, you had mentioned earlier that seeing breast cancer in younger populations, so under the age of 40, is rare. So 5%. Are these cancers different from what we see in the older population? Yeah. So in general, um, these breast cancers tend to be a little bit more aggressive. And so what we mean by that is they tend to um, grow a little bit faster. Um, By the time these women come to us, they're usually a bigger size than something that would be, um, you know, picked up on a screening mammogram. Yeah. And and so... You had mentioned earlier when we were talking about genetic testing that one of the things that would prompt genetic testing is having a family member who was diagnosed at a young age. So is that something that you recommend for all patients who get breast cancer at a young age is to get genetic testing or does that really rely on their family history? So all women who are diagnosed with breast cancer before the age of 40 are eligible for genetic testing, um, and we do refer them. Um, it can be very helpful like, um, if they come back with a, 
positive mutation, sometimes that can change what kind of surgery they might opt for. Um, and then, as you mentioned, it's very helpful for their family members to know as well. So many of us have heard that breast cancer, when diagnosed at an early age, tends to be more aggressive, as you mentioned. Do we know why that is in younger patients? So we don't quite know why that is, and there's a lot of research being done about it. We, we think that on some level, it probably has to do with the hormone levels. Um, the estrogen levels are much higher in young women, um, and so that might prompt more growth. Um, but we also see a lot of what we call triple negative breast cancers um, in these young women that are not driven by um, hormone levels. Um, so it's a little bit unclear. Um, we do know that about 20 to 30% of these young women do end up testing positive for genetic mutations. And so perhaps those mutations are contributing to their cancer being more aggressive as well. Terrific. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. But on the other side of the break, I hope to find out more about how treatment algorithms might be different in younger women diagnosed with breast cancer. So please stay tuned to learn more with my guest, Dr. Maria Rosenblatt. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital where a wide spectrum of advanced strategies for the diagnosis and treatment of gynecologic cancers are offered. To learn more, visit YaleCancerCenter.org slash G-Y-N-O-N-C. The American Cancer Society estimates that more than 65,000 Americans will be diagnosed with head and neck cancer this year, making up about 4% of all cancers diagnosed. When detected early, however, head and neck cancers are easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers. Yale Cancer Center was recently awarded grants from the National Institutes of Health to fund the Yale Head and Neck Cancer Specialized Program of Research Excellence or SPORE, to address critical barriers to treatment of head and neck squamous cell carcinoma due to resistance to immune, DNA-damaging, and targeted therapy. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Maria Rosenblatt. We're learning today about why younger women develop breast cancer and how that might vary from older women. So right before the break, Maria, you were telling us that most breast cancers are actually diagnosed in what we'll call older women. Not really old, but older. So 50s, 60s, in that range. And what you're really interested in is women who are diagnosed under the age of 40. So you had mentioned that these cancers sometimes present at a larger size. Um, they tend to be a little bit more aggressive. And we're not really sure why that happens. But Tell us a little bit more about how the treatment of younger women might vary uh, from how treatment is for older women. Sure. So sometimes because these women are presenting with a larger tumor to begin with, um, they may 
require chemotherapy um, along with some targeted treatments that we have available. And then if the tumor is hormone positive, um, that really affects um, their fertility. Um, we often have to give medications that induce menopause early for hormone positive breast cancers. And so we always talk to them about what are their childbearing plans um, and if they would like to see a fertility specialist um, to talk about possible fertility preservation options before they start treatments. So let, let's pick up on that before we go uh, much further, because I think that this is a really interesting um, topic. And many young women might actually be very scared about this. So, you know, you're in your mid-20s or 30s, and you've just been diagnosed with breast cancer, you were thinking about starting a family, and now you need to get chemotherapy, which will, you know, put you uh, amenorrheic, so you'll stop having your cycles. If you're hormone receptor positive, you might be given something that'll put you into menopause. Many women might have the question as to, a, whether they can have children, uh, and B, whether that's safe. Sure. So um, for young women, um, this becomes a complicated discussion because um, if they were um, planning to start a family, this does delay that. Um, so we do want them to be um, on treatments that decrease their estrogen levels and make them amenorrheic. Um, for at least a certain amount of time um, to treat their breast cancer. Um, but after they're done um, with treatment, most women, especially if they're young and in their 20s, um, regain their fertility um, and will actually probably be able to have children on their own. Um, but it's always nice to talk about the fertility preservation options and to have you know eggs or embryos stored as an option. Um, and as women get closer to their late 30s or 40s, um, there is a possibility that they may not um, regain those estrogen levels. And so it's good to have those eggs and embryos stored. Um, but in terms of safety, um, we do have data showing that it is safe to have children. And so after a certain amount of time of being treated for breast cancer, we have had women um, have a healthy pregnancy and have healthy children. Um, and it is safe from, from our standpoint and from the OBGYN standpoint. So having children after a breast cancer diagnosis doesn't increase your risk of recurrence. Is that right? As far as we know, it does not increase the risk of recurrence. Um, what we do worry about is if, um, uh, so there's a certain amount of time um, after the breast cancer, for example, in the first one to two years where we want to make sure that those estrogen levels are still low. So if somebody wants to have children earlier than that, we worry about that. But if they completed you know, that treatment time, then as far as we know, it, it's safe to do so. So tell us a little bit more about fertility options. People who have gone through IVF, which is a, a similar kind of uh, process, one would think, are often um, injected with hormones like estrogen. And yet we know that estrogen for many cancers is a stimulant for that breast cancer. So how does that work? I mean, what are our fertility preservation options and are they associated with um, being stimulated with hormones? And what effect does that have on breast cancer? 
So because somebody has already developed the breast cancer, um, we don't think that being stimulated um, to increase those estrogen levels for egg or embryo retrieval um, is that dangerous. It's a very short amount of time and we're going to treat them for the breast cancer anyway. So we do think it's safe to go through these options and it's especially important for women and will affect their childbearing options for many years to come. So we think it's really important. And is that covered by insurance or is that something that women have to pay for out of pocket? So when it's related to a cancer diagnosis, it is usually covered by insurance. And so the idea here is that you need to, you know, kind of think about that and harvest those ovaries and those embryos before you start treatment. Because if you've gone through chemotherapy, you may not be able to generate those eggs or embryos um, on your own. So... Um, so let's talk a little bit more about um, tr- other treatment uh, issues that are pertinent, particularly for young women. One is uh, the chemotherapy that you mentioned, that many women who present to, at a younger age, especially with more advanced cancers, need to go through chemotherapy. Is the type of chemotherapy different than for older women? I mean, are you treating them with different drugs? And if so, tell us a little bit more about that. So the drugs themselves are um, pretty standard and usually the same. Um, It really depends on the size of the tumor, if um, we think that there are lymph nodes that are involved. Um, Really the stage of the tumor um, drives the decision regarding what type of chemotherapy to use regarding whether we're going to use a more aggressive regimen or a less aggressive regimen. And because many of these women, as you mentioned, um, undergo genetic testing, are there some chemotherapeutic regimens that are are geared towards particular mutation carriers than others? So now it's very exciting. Um, Not prior to surgery, but after surgery, um, there are now uh, specific treatments available. So for example, if somebody has a BRCA mutation or a PALB2 mutation, we now have something called a PARP inhibitor, um, which uh, is a pill. um, And we're able to use that um, if prior treatments have not been effective for this patient population. And and so that is only available after surgery. Is that right? Mm Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit then about surgeries. Um, You had mentioned earlier before the break that you know, many of these women may make different decisions about their surgery than older women. Talk to us a little bit more about that. So it really depends on um, if they have a positive mutation. And some mutations, for example, BRCA, we know that those increase the risk of getting a recurrence. And so by that, we mean a breast cancer um, that comes back in the same breast or in the other breast. Um And so for that, um, if the woman has a BRCA mutation, it is recommended to get a mastectomy um, and a bilateral mastectomy to decrease the risk of the breast cancer coming back in the other breast as well. Okay. And so one of the questions that I know many patients ask is, if I have a bilateral mastectomy, do I still need chemo? Yeah, and that's a great question. So 
you know, the different treatments um, kind of affect different parts of breast cancer risk. So the surgery, like we talked about, um, decreases the risk of the cancer coming back in the breast specifically. But what we worry about as oncologists is, is the cancer going to come back in other parts of the body? So sometimes breast cancer can come back in the bones or the liver or other organs. And if that happens, it's considered metastatic. And at that point, we can't cure it. So we really want to make sure that we're preventing a recurrence of metastatic breast cancer. And chemotherapy helps to do that because if there's any kind of microscopic cell that might have escaped from the tumor and gone to the bloodstream, chemotherapy is a treatment that can treat that because it goes everywhere. Great. And so, you know, I think it's important for young women to understand that even if you're going to decide uh, to have a mastectomy, reconstruction is, is always an option for you as well. If young women um, wanted to keep their breasts, could they do that? And if so, how do you continue to screen for their breasts knowing that they may be at increased risk of developing breast cancer in the same breast or in the other breast. Yeah, absolutely. So it's always, um, you know, the choice of the woman, um, what kind of surgery to do. And if they choose to keep their breast, um, we do have breast MRIs that are available. Um, they're a little bit more sensitive than mammograms and ultrasounds. Um, and we usually alternate doing those with mammograms. So every six months, they can get a type of imaging to keep a closer eye on them. You know, the other the other question that comes up, I think, in young women, and especially in those who uh, may have a genetic mutation, is that genetic mutations like BRCA1 and 2, PALB2, and a number of the other ones, not just increase your risk of breast cancer, but may increase your risk of other cancers as well. In the main, when we talk about BRCA, we talk about ovarian cancer. And so do you recommend that these women also have their ovaries removed? And if so, should that be done after they've finished having children? Or uh, is that something that would prevent them from having children? Yeah, so it's a complicated question. And we know that for um, BRCA, whether it's one or two, um, you know, there's a different risk in terms of how, how high the risk is for ovarian cancer. So it depends a little bit on what type. And we know that for PALB2, there is a slightly higher risk of ovarian cancer, um, but we don't quite know if, if they necessarily have to get their ovaries out. So it really is a, a risk and benefit discussion um, that they have with us as well as with the OBGYN doctor. Um, and it also depends on where they are in childbearing age. So it is okay to hold off on that surgery until they're done having children. Um, and we know that even though the risk is higher, um, the risk for ovarian cancer really becomes highest um, in their late 30s, early 40s. Um, so if they really do want to have children, it's okay to hold off on that surgery. And I think the other thing always to keep in mind with young women, as with older women as well, but, you know, these are women who are getting breast cancer in the primes of their lives, right? So they may be um, on a professional track. Uh, they may be at the height of their career. Um, they may already have young children. 
what kinds of things uh, do you recommend in terms of making sure that the rest of their life, not just their breast cancer, is taken care of? Absolutely. Um, we know that it's incredibly hard to get breast cancer at such a young age. And, um, you know, our treatments affect their body image, their sexual function, their quality of life, their psychosocial health. Um, we know that for young people getting all kinds of cancer, there is a higher financial burden. Um, so we always um, try to get social work involved. And it really is a multidisciplinary team um, where we have lots of different professionals in, involved to try to help them with all different aspects of life that are affected by the cancer. Dr. Maria Rosenblatt is an instructor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu. And past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.